Lord, we just uh, can't thank you enough for your love for us. Uh, it's so vast and amazing and wonderful. And uh, we just thank you for loving each of us and loving our families. And uh, you, you just love everybody. And so we're grateful and we thank you and we look forward to tonight. And we ask you to uh, speak through Rabbi Haim and that, uh, Lord, the messages you want to get through to us will get through. And we honor you in every way we know how. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we love Jesus, but we prefer the Hebrew name. Uh, okay. Um, the last couple of weeks have been preliminary, in a sense, um, to the discussion of the tabernacle. But at least from where I sit, uh, it really is not um, secondary because when people think about the tabernacle, this is what they think of, okay? Which is fine. I mean, it, it, this is a, a de physical depiction um, and it is relatively easy uh, to find out some of the practical information about the tabernacle. What is more difficult is to dig beneath that and find the spiritual implications uh, of the tabernacle. So, as I mentioned the first time, uh, one of the ways people try to get at that is through the uh, avenue of typology. You know, uh, the, the, the curtains were, were purple, Therefore, this symbolizes royalty. Uh, the, the, uh, there were red, it symbolizes blood, and so on and so forth, which really misses the point uh, because Scripture uh, emphasizes colors sometimes, but, but, uh, and, and God loves colors, but, but the tabernacle is not about colors. The Tabernacles is about the presence of God. And so, um, what is much more challenging is to dig beneath the surface and to say, okay, what is this about? Um, so I wanted to do a little bit of review uh, before we get started. And uh, by the way, in case you wonder, uh, the ones who have PhD in information about the tabernacle are the rabbis. Uh, A, because uh, in the second century, 200 or so, is when the Mishnah was, was written. The Mishnah, by the way, anybody know what the Mishnah is? Okay. Uh, maybe our uh, Trinidadian twins can tell us about the Mishnah or not. Um, the Mishnah was, or is, uh, the compendium of rabbinic writing. Okay, um, this is not in your notes, so this is kind of extra here. Uh, um, from the time of Ezra, which is about uh, the year 400 or so BCE, um, you had the Pharisees and, and the rabbis, which I intertwined, um, 
spend countless amount of time trying to figure out what God wanted the people of Israel to do. Um, because when God says don't work, for example, on the Shabbat, what does that mean? Hmm? You have to define it. You have to define it. And the Torah gives very, very few descriptions of what God meant uh, by do not work. I mean, the, the basic idea is don't do work that, uh, that you do for in order to make a living. Um, which sometimes makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, so the Torah mentions the fact that you should not go and gather wood, uh, you should not go gather the manna, uh, not that we have manna now, uh, you should not build fires, uh, and you should not do what scripture calls uh, servile work with some translations. Uh, that has, comes from the word uh, to serve, um, so what the rabbis wanted to do, and they spent a few centuries trying to define what does it mean to work. So by the way, at this point, um, rabbinic law has about a thousand or so different rules and regulations having to do with the Shabbat. Uh, and why such a huge number of laws and regulations? Because as time goes on, um, Society changes, and the rabbis wanted to uh, make sure that they were in compliance even with, with the changes. So, for example, uh, there were no elevators in the first century. Uh, so when the elevators came, the rabbis had to figure out, okay, what do you do with an elevator? Uh, so, and I'm taking a few steps back here to kind of bring you into it. Uh, they determined that uh, any time you do something that involves a motor, any kind of motor, uh, internal combustion motor, as in a car, or electric motor, you're doing work. Okay? Um, so you, you can see that for a person who has to go out and, and chop down uh, and, and hew trees and so on, uh, how does it translate to us? Well, what they've determined is that any time you activate a motor, you're doing work. Uh, which is why, according to rabbinic law, you cannot drive a car in a Shabbat. Um, which also has, has been stretched to mean that um, you also cannot push a button because the button will activate a motor. Uh, no wonder. Uh, so the elevator. Huh? The elevator that has a button. The elevator has a button. You cannot use that. So what the Department of um, Rabbinic Law in Hebrew University and, and Science got together, and they figured out a way to <laughs> get around that so that uh, there are special Shabbat elevators that are outfitted to where you have eye recognition uh, so that you don't have to push a button. Now, you're still activating a motor somehow, 
And, and again, remember that there are all kinds of ways to dance around that. I learned that the hardware. Aki and the librarian, the ones you know, they have the even numbers. Yeah. We know a bunch of rabbis. I thought they were working. A bunch of CD juice in the hotel. I thought they thought, they just, oh, oh. I don't know what they say, but I thought, I better get on that they're going to kill me. Well, uh, they, they're I very, don't know that. <laughs> they're very serious. They're very serious about, about that. And it's like everything else that's man-made. Uh, it may start out with good intentions, and uh, when we get our hands around it, it gets mucky. Uh, hang on. Um, so, again, uh, Yeshua never condemned the Pharisees in broad terms. He condemned them for being hypocritical um, and abusing their authority. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm trying to think this is relevant now. Another thing they pondered is because they were not to do any work. Uh, during the building of the right um, tabernacle, uh, yes, they, um, they, um, they they also went through the rabbis also went through decide well, what was it that they were doing for the tabernacle and decided that those that would also be classified as work. Yeah. They so they, ob like they yeah. obviously did work. Uh, what the rabbis did is they said, okay, here is a commandment honor the Shabbat, don't work on the Shabbat, and here you have a bunch of instruction about how to build the tabernacle, and then right after that you also have another another statement saying honor the Shabbat. So they assumed that everything that's taking place here in, in the different kinds of work for the Shabbat was something that was off limits uh, as far as... Mm. Do, doing work on the Shabbat. They came up with 39 different categories of work that you cannot do on the Shabbat. Uh, so, uh, Mishnah, so at some point, all that was oral, was passed down from father to son, generation to gener rabbi to, to Talmud. At some point in the year 200, um, uh, the leader, Rabbi Yehuda, decided it had to be written down because they were afraid that it would get lost. And that's where the Mishnah, uh, st uh, that's where the Mishnah was written down. Then at some point, um, for another couple hundred years, uh, you had uh, the explanation of explanation um, the explanation of the Mishnah was put in a, in a form called Gemara, and together that was the Talmud. Um, and I won't get much more into that. So, uh, my point in saying all of that is that uh, when we come to details about the Temple, uh, the Mishnah is a very good source of where where we can get some details uh, for for the temple uh, because you're looking at several generations who are around and who transmitted it orally and was written down so all that to say um, 
it's like everything else. You you take it with a grain of salt sometime, and uh, for your viewing pleasure, at some point after we're done, you can uh, do the Evelyn Wood speed reading course on on this book about the tabernacle um, that some kind soul felt I had to have it. Um, it's a good. It's a wonderful book. Uh, some very helpful descriptions um, because frankly some of the details that we find uh, in scripture is not this simple mm -hmm. um, and we don't have all the details all the facts um, and so sometimes what has come down through rabbinic tradition in the Mishnah particularly is very helpful uh, I, I happen to think that sometimes you you need to take it with a grain of salt uh, because you also need to include what has been discovered by archaeologists uh, because remember when God uh, gave the instructions for Israel to build a tabernacle um, he often works with what is there in the culture and the society around us. You know, case in point is uh, the uh, the blood is something that was hugely important for people back then. It isn't so much for us now. You know, if 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 I want to be your good friend, I don't come and cut some blood and so on, but. Blood was a sign of strong friendship back then. So all that to say, you take information from the, first of all from scripture, then from Mishnah, and then from uh, archaeology, and you have a better idea of what's what. Um, so, just a, a couple more um, ideas as far as review is concerned. Um, let's see if I can find it. Um, again, remember, folks, what is the big picture here? The big picture is that God wanted to dwell with Israel, and the word for that is dwelling, dwelling with Israel. Abide. Hebrew. Mishkan. 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 Oh, was that last week? That was two weeks ago, actually. And the week before. And the week before. I don't have an exit. I figure if, if, I, if I'm sufficiently pesky, you guys will remember. Um, so that's God's overall strategy, folks. Is he wanted, he wanted his presence to dwell. He wanted to... Uh, recoup what was lost in the garden. And by the way, what we are seeing from the garden uh, uh, at this point are uh, partial because remember that the full picture will not be there until until there is no need for temple. Revelation 21 that says that there was no temple. Why? Because God's presence was so so much there. Now, Again, remember that a big part of the picture. Ah, this is a mess. 
big part of the picture is that you have dynamic tension between two things. Uh, God wants to be close, but he cannot be close. Why? Because he's holy. He's holy and? We have sin. And we're sinful. Which means that at this point, the tabernacle, a sanctuary that uh, where God dwells, can give us partial uh, uh, exposure to the presence of God, but there has to be some distance. Uh, at some point, that will no longer be the case. At this point, there has to be some distance because of God's holiness. And that's what you see in the tabernacle. Um, since we have this verbal, uh, visual, um, what you see here is when you go from here to here is you have an increase in degree of holiness. You start out with something that is less holy and you come to something that is most holy. Uh, which also means that here you have a, a bunch of people who can serve. Here you, you have only one. Which also means that the, uh, the material that is used here is more common. The material that is used here is more precious. Uh, you go from bronze to gold. You go from uh, linen that is fairly basic to linen that is incredibly intricate by the time we get to, to the Holy of Holies. Uh, the other thing I wanted to remind you, and we talked about how you have a nation of slaves, and we think of slaves that all they can do was build bricks. When you look at the instruction for the tabernacle, you realize that during those 400 years that Israel's in Egypt, you have to have people who are pro who were properly skilled, because the work that is mentioned here, some of the work here is very very intricate. Um, on the part of the women who are doing the the uh, the ornaments, the sewing, uh, I mean, it, it is the work of an artisan. And the same thing when it comes to the men who are doing the metalworking. And we'll talk about the, um, the lamp. I mean, it, it's phenomenal. Um, again, remember that this is what the Torah is really about. You know, uh, we focus on, different people focus on different parts of the Law of Moses. You know, the rabbis tend to focus on the things that we can do uh, according to halakha, according to the laws. This is what you do, this is what you don't do. Uh, in a church, people tend to focus on the so-called moral law. What both parties don't realize is that what God is after in the Torah is first and foremost worship. There are 56 chapters or so in the Torah uh, that talk about worship of one kind or another. Um, either the construction of the tabernacle or the sacrificial system. Um, it is not about blood and gore. It is about God wanted to dwell with people. 
and so we, we tend to have it backwards. It's like, what am I supposed to do? First of all, the question is not, what am I supposed to do? Rather, what does God want? And uh, Because if we focus on uh, our worshiping of God as the highest priority, then everything else is going to flow from that. Uh, moral code, ethical code, etc., etc. So this is by way of review. Um, so when we come, I think we're all familiar with the basic layout. I mean, um, this is about 150 feet by 75, if I have my facts straight. Um, and you have um, a couple of... We'll go from inside, from the outside in. Um, and Rabbi David was gracious to provide us with a, a picture. Uh, so, um, the labor. Um, where did the labor come from? Ladies, it came from the mirrors, mm -hmm. not just any mirror. It came from the mirrors of the gals who were serving at the entrance to the tabernacle. Now, I'm intrigued by that because Scripture really doesn't tell us exactly how it is that they served, but there's a very special Hebrew word to describe them. Uh, it's a military term, sovot. Uh, in other words, that what it was that they did was considered to be um, very key as far as God's machinery was concerned. Um, that was the case not only in the tabernacle, it also was the case, uh, it continued to be the case. How do we know that? Because remember that the sons of Eli, who are rascals, one of the things God... Uh, was extremely angry with them is that they abused the women who were serving uh, at the entrance to the tabernacle. Um, how angry was he? Well, he killed them. No problem. Um, so, why have a labor? First of all, think about the practical difficulties in having a container of water in a desert. Did you think about that? Uh, so, where would the water come from? It was hauled in. From where? The sea? Or a river? A lake? Are we talking Mount Sinai? Uh, we're talking about initially Mount Sinai, but then Israel went round and around and around for 40 years. Where would they get water? God could have them speak to a rock and have water come out of it. It, it at least in my mind, it had to be something supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, you don't turn on the hose. No. <laughs> no, you, you do not turn on the hose. And why was it, uh, why did they need to do that? Why did they wash their feet and, and wash their hands? Preparation. Preparation for... Well, I think all of it was, uh, I mean, isn't, 
well, and I'm going to say this to say that is as you go into the the further you go into the the um, tabernacle wasn't as and as it got you know more holy as you, if you will wasn't everything a, a a preparation for something every one of those pieces of furniture or whatever was a preparation for preparing yourself wasn't it every one of those pieces of furniture had a very significant place yes as a place of preparation though um, would you say no. The preparation was the, the washing, but yes, that was obviously symbolic, uh, because you can imagine one of the priests was saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to do my job, and uh, I'm too busy, I can't wash my hands and feet. What did the Lord say would happen? It died. It died. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty serious. Yeah. Uh, because it isn't so much that God was concerned about a little bits of schmutz on, on their on their hands and feet. Uh, it is the principle that, by the way, is very applicable uh, to us. That yes, we're told to come boldly before the throne, but we're not called to come disrespectfully before the throne. And furthermore, what do you think God thinks of us when we come to seek Him, when we come to pray? And we have all kinds of yuck that we've not dealt with. That, folks, is not washing our hands and feet when we come before the throne of God. Because, he, again, remember, He's a holy God. He wants His people to be holy. And so, yes, this had to do with the physical washing. And by the way, uh, we're talking about the labor itself. It's not a huge thing. Um, it it was. See if I get the specs here. Uh, it was it was a relatively small thing. I had my notes here, and I'm not finding it. Terrible. Ah, no. Seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half. Yes. No, that's the altar. Um, Help, I need somebody. Not just anybody. Um, in any event, what, what is shocking for us is to realize that each one of these items was relatively small. And I just mis misplaced the, uh, uh, the specs for for the labor. Um, That's the Solomon's. That's Solomon, not for this one. I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. So. Oh, the labor was 15 feet rim to rim. Seven Solomon. No, 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 it's Solomon. No? Solomon. We're, we're talking about relatively. Oh, yes, I brought my trusty. Um, voila. Uh -huh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> yes, uh, all of these, all all of these were, were relatively small. Again, remember, they all had to be carried, and each one of the items had rings through, the, rings on one side, ring on the other side, where um, uh, poles were thrust through them so that the Levites could carry them from place to place. Um, yeah, my point about Solomon is Solomon Solomon's temple was the tabernacle on steroids. Um, 
the labor itself, which was called the sea, uh, was about uh, 15, uh, 15 feet from rim to rim. It was about seven feet high, and it rested on um, on a bunch of uh, brass uh, bullocks, oxen. Um, so again, that's symbolic um, of the tension that exists between coming and seeking God and also recognizing our total inadequacy. Uh, that God is immanent in that he, he is with us, He walks with us, but He's also transcended His way, way above us. We somehow need to recognize that. Um, all right, the altar, the bronze altar, was supposed to be kept burning perpetually, according to Leviticus 6. Um, that was one of the larger items, seven feet. Again, we're not talking about something huge. Uh, seven feet. It's, it's not that large, considering all that had to take place on, on the bronze altar. Um, most of these were made of acacia wood. Um, the bronze altar was hollow in the center, uh, which means that they had to, to fill it with dirt and uncut rocks, and on that put uh, the coals and, and provide the offering. Um, if you look at at the altar, see those things that's sticking out? They're called horns, and whether they actually look like horns, on this page, um, right here on, on, your, on your right, um, that was for blood to be, to be applied, but also, uh, it was also a place of safety, which was an odd thing to consider, but one of David's sons uh, ran to the tabernacle and grabbed hold of the horns of the altar. Huh? Temple. No. 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 Tabernacle. Temple. The temple. It's still the tabernacle. David. David. David's sons. Tabernacle. Solomon. Well, that's right. David. Solomon. Yeah. Solomon. The, temple. Yeah. the temple wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> the temple was not built yet. Then it grabbed hold of, of these horns, and that was his. That was his safety. His asylum. Um, and so we'll get into the sacrificial system in next week, or a couple of weeks actually, but the thing we want to remember is one basic fact, that is the brazen altar was where atonement was provided. And you can get lost in, in, in all the details with all the blood and gore, and when you when you read the uh, instructions for the sacrifices, it get kind of intense. Uh, I mean, if you're a, a person who likes um, that kind of detail, which I do, I happen to be a little sick, um, you would be okay with it. But again, remember, Leviticus 17.11 is the governing principle. You all remember Leviticus 17.11? Really? Well, you need to know that. Hmm? 
For the life of a creature is in the blood, and right. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Okay. So, the basic principle of life for life. Sorry. The principle is life for life, which means that you and I are worthy of death, and God says, I love you, here's a way out. That's what the very basic explanation for atonement. Uh, again, we'll talk more about that. All right, I finally have something where I have the statistics, the details. Um, the altar of incense, and I want to park here a little bit. Uh, the picture is uh, right here. Again, you see that it has horns. Um, again, we're talking about something that is relatively small. Um, a foot and a half by a foot and a half. 18 inches. Not big stuff. Um, and the altar of incense had, of course, incense. thank you. What was incense? Incense was a very sophisticated uh, mixture of spices that not everybody could do. In fact, Scripture says that it had to be the work of a perfumer. I don't know what a perfumer is, but somebody who makes perfumes, in this case, an incense maker. Um, and how, well, how particular God was about the incense. Could you just sit down and throw some stuff together? No, it had to be perfect. It had to be perfect. It had to be very, very sophisticated. Again, clear indication of the fact that the children of Israel, at least on some level, were very skilled in doing the kind of work they were doing because this, uh, they had to be a perfumer before the tabernacle was started. Um, and, and secondly, uh, God said that if you were to take this special mixture and you say, you know, I really like the smell, I'm going to use it for myself, what would be the result? Death. Because here we have this principle of uh, making distinction between what is holy, i.e. set apart for God, and that which is common, chol. C-H-O-L. And chol does not mean dirty or defiled. It just means that which is common. So something that belongs to God is holy. Something that is not, whether it's clean or unclean, is chol. And so God said to Israel, the special incense... Is, is holy. No one else can make it. No one else can use it for anything other than incense. And by the way, where was the, um, the altar of incense positioned? Right in front of the Holy of Holies curtain. Right in front of the Holy of Holies. 
And there are times in Scripture where the altar of incense is basically considered to be part of the Holy of Holies because it was so close. Um, symbolism for incense? Well, remember that the priest would come and he would uh, put, put the um, light, the incense, real close to the Holy of Holies. It was kind of a form of prayer, which is why in Revelation we see that incense is considered, that the prayers of God's children is considered to be incense, like incense before God. Why? Hmm? Fragrance. Now, think think about the the um, the picture here, and and by the way, as when we get into the sacrifi sacrificial system, we'll see that there are a number of times where it is described as um, fragrant fragrance in God's nostrils. Uh, which is bizarre because you're talking about blood and gore, etc. Uh, not in the case of the incense, but think about the fact that our sense of smell is the most powerful sense that we have. You know, when you are in, in, in an elevator and you smell something and that reminds you of someone special in your life, you know, etc., etc., it's very evocative, and so God uses these things to communicate to us that our prayers are something that He smells and He says, "Wow, that really blesses me." Incense have a very strong smell. It almost makes you sick. I don't know why. because they use in the Catholic Church, and that's what I know. Well, the, where do you think the Catholic Church got it from? The, the, the incense, the, the candles, the robes, etc. All right. Um, the table, I want to talk a little bit about the table of the presence or the showbread. Uh, the rabbis call it the table of the surfaces because that's a word that can be translated. But I think the simple, simple meaning of this word and would you guys give me a few minutes? I think we may run a little late. We got a little late start. But uh, it's called Lechem Hapanim. Okay. Lechem Hapanim. Panim means face. Face to face. Panim el Panim. Um, again, we're talking about something relatively small, three feet. By two feet. Again, like like the other uh, elements, other components, it was acacia wood overlaid with gold. Um, each Shabbat, the bread was baked. And it would uh, it would be eaten by the family, the priests. Uh, why have bread on the table? Yeah. 
What, what significance to God would that make? Hmm? Bread of life. Well, bread of life. Bread is very basic to life. Okay. Did he declare that it meant his presence? Yeah. Uh, remember that some of, a lot of what we find in a tabernacle was designed to be a contrast with what the pagans did so that Israel knew who God is and who he is not. Uh, in pagan temples, there was food that was put in the presence of deity. Did God need food? No. Obviously not, which is why it was not before, before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. Um, but again, it's called panim in my mind because it is so symbolic of God's presence. God wanted to be with us. Um, the other thing I want to mention, and we'll take time for questions, um, is the lampstand. Now, I don't know if you can see this from where you are, but it is incredibly ornate. Uh, in fact, um, would you take a look at that, and I shall be right back. it on to these folks.
later version. Yeah. Oh, you think that you think what we see now is more is the later? Okay. Yeah. There's the one in temple. There's the one in Jerusalem. Is the later version? Yeah. As best as we know, the typical kind of menorah is the later version. Um, we're not really sure. But uh, I don't know if you had a chance to notice, um, when you read the details carefully, it is phenomenal how much, how intricate they are. Uh, you talk about flowers and buds, and all that is in gold, folks. Uh, all made from, from one basic hunk of metal, hammered. Um, and we're not sure why God chose that particular pattern from the menorah, but as you read the details carefully, it looks like um, it was something like from a local tree, possibly an, an almond tree. Um, you know, why, why would God want to have great, such great deal of intricacy? in his tabernacle, in his sanctuary. To test um, their devotion. Okay. Whatever it can beauty. Beauty. Okay. Uh, the Lord could have simply said, okay, this we're going to have an altar here, uh, and, and, and a place to wash, and an altar here, and a place to put some loaves of bread, and... And in, in, in the candle, uh, but instead everything had to be defined in great detail. Um, one of the reasons was that God wanted everybody in the community to be involved. Mm. Mm. That's good. Uh, because the different aspects uh, from the outside, with all the different skins. And inside, with with the uh, clothing, which we'll talk about next next week, um, and the intricacy with with the gold work, all that required different kinds of, of skill. Now, remember, uh, if you were here last time, we talked about. Here's another Hebrew phrase for you. And please don't tell me chacham. Chacham Lev, those who are skilled in heart. Now, again, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how that uh, that there does not need to be a sharp distinction between what is my natural gifts, uh, what I was born with, what I experienced, versus what was given to me supernaturally by the Spirit of God, there really is no need to, for that to take place because it all comes from... God. Yeah. In whatever form. Um, and so we see that uh, B'Tzalel, remember B'Tzalel? You don't remember B'Tzalel. Uh, B'Tzalel was the master contractor. And God said, See, I have filled... B'tzalel, with the spirit, my spirit, uh, in wisdom, understanding, and 
knowledge to be able to uh, work together with the second in command who was a Holiab and to instruct different people. So it was, it was a massive uh, event, massive affair that involved people on all kinds of levels. Again, very much part of what we see in Scripture about kingdom work. The work of the kingdom of God cannot take place with only one or two people in different places. Yes, ma'am. Um, I've always felt that um, the, the God being very specific like that was sort of, it sort of let us know that we don't approach God nonchalantly. You don't think of Him as any old thing will do for Him. I mean, the fact that He was so specific in the things they had to do and there were consequences if you didn't follow those, I think it sort of let us let them know, but let us know too, especially in today where we can approach the throne so easily, really. But it's a reminder to us that he is not just anybody. Um, the fact that he has such specific rules and this sort of thing, I, I just feel that it, it, it helps us not to be too nonchalant about Absolutely. And think about the fact that, that in the tabernacle, uh, as you went from the outside to the inside, it became more holy. Think about the personal application for us as believers. Mm -hmm. If we want to get close to God, do we very nonchalantly breeze in? Because if we do, then we're going to be here on the outside. I mean, kind of experiencing the presence of God loosely. But if we're serious, then we're going to do what it is that God laid out, mm -hmm. and we will be willing to pay a price. And intimacy with God does not come cheaply, folks. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we're not talking about works righteousness, I have to do something to prove myself to God. But a simple reality that a person who wants to, to get to know God and is serious about that will invest the time, the effort, whatever it takes, um, in order to draw closer to God. Here's something else that I wanted to uh, mention before I forget. That's kind of what I was referring to when I said in preparation for, is the closer we get, there's, you know, the preparation that we, you know, in, 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 in encountering Him and in, in being with Him and in, in just that intimacy, as you said. So. Yeah, and it's hard for us to see that because God is a spirit and we relate to Him spiritually. Well, I'm preparing our hearts. Preparing our hearts, and and w one of the key words in Scripture for sacrifice is korban, which comes from the notion of drawing close to God. Drawing close, karov. Korban is something that you bring when you draw close to God. Um, part of, and, and I'll finish with this, part of the cheapness of our culture sometimes as believers has the notion of intimacy is something that is instant mm. you know I, I push a button and uh, I do something and boom here comes something very special uh, works that way with the internet which of course is a mixture of good, bad, and ugly. 
uh, doesn't work that way with God. And part of what, in, from my perspective, what I hear over and over and over again is people who are serving God or are presumed to serve God and do all kinds of stuff. And, and I read scripture. I read what, what the Word of God says about serving Him in a tabernacle. And I have fear. Yeah. Not because I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid that God will zap me. I have fear. Reverential fear. Yeah. Reverential fear that I wish was a more common thing because we, we cheapen what it means to draw close to God. Um, because we are in a society that's very instant. Uh, and so the notion of investing all kinds of capital in something that takes a long time, closeness to God, intimacy with God, is, is not something that happens overnight. It, it's not something that you put in money in, in, a, uh, in a candy machine and out comes some goody. Um, what the tabernacle, among other things, shows us is that closeness with God requires an investment uh, of who we are and a willingness to say, okay, I'm doing this because I want to draw close to God and how it plays out may take a long time, but, uh, but it means so much to me that I'm willing to do that. Again, uh, when we look at the Holy of Holies next week, um, unless we're beamed up and we'll be instantly in the Holy of Holies, uh, but when we look at the Holy of Holies next week and the clothing of, of the High Priest, um, Please remember that, that what God is after here is that He wants to dwell with people. Uh, no earthly reason, because you and I know who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and for God to, to say, I, wanna, I want you to get to know me, I want you to draw close to me, means He is willing to know us as we are with all our yuck, and, and yet... He wants to have us draw near to Him. That, folks, if we really get it, will mean that we are willing to say, "Okay, um, I want that," because ultimately, that's really what what this book is about. Um, that's what the tabernacle is about. Willie, since you don't have anything in your mouth now, would you finish for us, please? <laughs> yes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its uh, uh, teaching, Lord, to uh, allow us to comprehend a little bit better, Father, what you're all about. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, we ask you as we depart from this location that we do not depart from your presence. And Lord, we ask you that you take us to our perspective homes in a safe manner. And Father, we just thank you. We just thank you for your mercy and for giving us a better understanding of the relationship that you want from us to have with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Amen.